so uh, it's about 9.35, so we'll go ahead and get started. This one, I did keep it a little little short, uh, especially with, uh, you know, Pastor Thomas announcing that we're going to have that uh, prayer time. Didn't want to um, potentially rush us getting into that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, open us with prayer. Our passage today is uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. But uh, before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, thank you for this time for us to gather here and hear your word read and taught and to encourage one another with it. I uh, pray that you would be with us in this first hour, that uh, you would guide me as I teach so that I would uh, teach faithfully and accurately and with, uh, with clarity um, and I pray that it would prepare us as we gather together for worship in the next hour, that uh, our hearts would be focused to hear your word proclaimed and to praise you and worship you as it is due to you. Um, Father, we pray especially today for the uh, Wakefields as uh, they are um, currently grieving the death of Richard's father, and I pray that you would be with them, comfort them, and encourage them as they're going through this difficult time. And uh, I pray that uh, we as a church would minister to them, especially um, that this passage today, as it pertains to that, would uh, would stir us up um, for their sake and, and for every, anyone else who goes through difficult times in our church that uh, we would be encouraged to show love and hospitality to one another. Father, I pray that you would be with us as a church today, that everything we would do would be uh, honoring and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so today's passage, 1 Peter 4, verses 1 to 11. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another without grumbling as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we come now then to... This fourth chapter, and well, Peter has so far been giving both doctrinal and uh, doctrinal teaching and practical exhortation, 
it's here in this chapter that he really begins to focus more heavily on the practical side and getting more more uh, specific with respect to, to practical things. We do start this chapter with another therefore. And so, of course, the teaching here is based on what was said before. Uh, Peter actually reminds us in verse 1 what that is, which is that Christ suffered in the flesh. So the suffering of Christ, if you remember, was the focus of the latter part of chapter 2, which we looked at a while back, and the latter part of chapter 3 that we looked at last week. And so it's on the basis of the suffering of Christ that we are to live according to what follows here in chapters 4 and 5. And so... Given that Christ suffered in the flesh, we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. As he suffered for our sake, we need to be willing to suffer for his sake. And as he suffered for righteousness' sake, we also should do the same. Peter says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Christ had no sin, but he did suffer as a sinner. And by doing so, he has made us who are his to be counted as sinless. And in doing that, he's demonstrated the justice and holiness of God as well. Um, God's justice, we know, informed by his holiness, is totally opposed to sin. And the result of that is that sinners must be put to death. And sin must be destroyed. But... By God's mercy, he has made a way for sinners to be spared from that judgment by having their sins taken by the Son of God upon himself and put to death in the person of Christ so that we sinners can live. But the very fact that God, that the Son of God suffered that horrible death in order to save us demonstrates just how heinous sin is. And it demonstrates how contrary sin is to God's holiness. And so we who are God's children need to not be cherishing sin any longer. We need to not be identifying ourselves with sin. We must not regard ourselves as uh, having anything to do with it any longer. And of course, we do still sin. And when we do, we must acknowledge it and we must own it. But we do need to understand that Sin is contrary to the new identity that we have in Christ. And so it's not something that we can hold on to in concert with our, our new identity in Christ. And so rather, we need to be willing to suffer for righteousness sake. And we need to seek to do the will of God. So those who seek to do God's will are going to suffer for it in this life. And uh, that's both in the sense that certain desires of the flesh are going to go unfulfilled, which is it can be very unpleasant for us at times, but also in the sense that those around us may malign us for not participating with them in those kinds of things. And this is especially true for those of us who grew up among worldly people and so had been involved in those things before. And that would have been the case for uh, most of the people that Peter is writing to. Um, the addressees of this letter, remember, they were living in Gentile lands in Asia Minor, part of the Roman Empire. And so they'd grown up in a culture that was full of these things that are listed there in verse 3. The sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Um, 
we growing up in modern Western world, we're surrounded by those things as well. And so, and, and some people who come into this church, some people who are, are Christians today, at one time participated in many of those things. But becoming a follower of Christ involves renouncing those kinds of things. In verse 2, he says, To live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions. And then uh, in verse 3, for the time that is past suffices for doing such things. So, though we may have enjoyed them before, uh, and though we're still in these fleshly bodies which might desire those things, we need to be looking forward to better things, to the permanent heavenly enjoyment of the presence of God where things like that are absent. And it, it is a challenging thing as long as we are in this life and in this um, sinful flesh. Even though we've been born again and we've been given new natures which desire conformity to God's law, um, we still face all of the temptations that our flesh is subject to, and so we must be warring against it, putting to death the deeds of the body. Um, Paul says in Colossians 3.5, which I'm sure Hal will be preaching on uh, after a while, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If we're enjoying these things and living in them, then we are committing idolatry because we're putting our enjoyment of fleeting things that are contrary to God's law above our enjoyment of God and above our pursuit of conformity to God's law. But besides the difficulty of battling against these desires within our own flesh, we also face temptations from outside of us. He says in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peer pressure, as we see, is nothing new. Uh, some of you were homeschooled and may not have had this experience, but if you were in high school and if you didn't participate in those kinds of things, then whether it was because you were already a believer and you were seeking to uh, be committed to God's will, or if it was just because you were you know, uh, one of the not-so-cool kids and just uh, had other interests, then you probably got made fun of, or at least you were just not considered to be one of the cool kids. Um, now, of course, let me be clear. Uh, abstaining from those things is ultimately worthless if it was not because of actually being uh, a child of God sanctified by the Holy Spirit. If you If you had other reasons for abstaining from them, that did not make you... Um, a more righteous person, even though I, I certainly had that mindset back then. But um, it, regardless of the reason, if you didn't participate in those things, you were probably maligned by your peers in some way. And so clearly, peer pressure is not just something that modern teenagers face. It was also the case in ancient Greco-Roman life. Um, Christians back then were seen as weird and prudish. And uh, it's also true even for adults today, no matter how far along in life you are. Um, there seems to be some kind of natural enjoyment that worldly people get from pushing other people to go beyond their stated boundaries or to cast off their inhibitions and, and often cheer them on as they're doing so. 
And that can be a serious source of temptations for Christians who are living in this world. I believe that Satan has put that desire in people's hearts as a way of attacking God's people. And so we must resist Satan by not indulging in the sinful things that the world enjoys and that the world might try to push us to enjoy with them. Now, there's a saying um, commonly attributed to Francis of Assisi, even though I don't think there's any evidence that he actually said it. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's a stupid saying, and we need to stop saying it. But, uh, and, and the reason why is because it, the gospel is good news of Christ's work, and, there's, and that's something that can only be communicated in words. But there is a kernel of truth in it which is that a Christian's action should distinguish him from the world in a way that uh, even when we don't say anything, our actions are noticed by the world. And you'll notice that Peter doesn't even mention preaching against these kinds of sinful activities at this point. He's only talking about the fact that Christians abstain from these things and that that is enough to catch the attention of others. Um, and that can uh, pique, the, pique the curiosity of others around us so that they might wonder, okay, why is it that certain people are not uh, interested in the things that we're interested in? And they might even then be willing to hear why we are the way that we are. And so we should take the opportunity to tell them. So um, always be preaching the gospel with words but understand that your actions may be something that can uh, open the door for that. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not sufficient for us to merely abstain from those things. We do need to communicate with words that those who are doing them are under condemnation and that unless they repent and believe the gospel also, they will perish. Uh, verse 5 says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There is nobody who will not stand before the judgment seat of God. And there can only be one of two outcomes of that. Either your sin was carried to the cross by Jesus, or it's still yours to answer for. Uh, physical death is not the end, and it's not an escape from the judgment of God, even though some people will seek it for that purpose. Um, like, for example, Revelation six twelve to 17. Can someone uh, read that? Yeah, Revelation 6, 12 to 17. Uh, Revelation 6, verses 12 to 17. 17. Mm -hmm. When we opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there is a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, as the fig tree shed its winter fruit and shaken by a hand. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Thank you. So, there are people who will think, at least in their desperation on that last day, that 
physical death is a way of escaping the wrath of God. But Peter says here that that will not suffice. He has come to judge the living and the dead. But also, physical death is not a hindrance to eternal life. As you see verse 6, he says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is another one of those passages that can seem a bit confusing at first. And uh, it seems like a lot of people have connected it with verse 19 of chapter 3 that we looked at last week, uh, which uh, speaks of Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in prison. Um, And some people use that to construct a doctrine of a, a second chance of salvation after a person has died. But I think that what Peter is getting at here is he's contrasting physical life and death with spiritual life and death. So he's not saying that people had the gospel preached to them after they had died as if that would have some benefit for them. Rather, what he's saying is that just because someone has died physically does not mean that the preaching of the gospel to them while they were still alive was in vain. Or to put it another way, um, someone dying physically is not an indication that they weren't saved and it doesn't hinder them from obtaining eternal life. They were, as he says, judged in the flesh the way people are, which is to say that their sin-polluted flesh was put to death, since death is the punishment for sin. But because they are in Christ, he says, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. So because the gospel was preached to them and they believed it, even though they have died, they still have eternal life. Um, Now this is... I believe the the explanation that made the most the best sense of this passage, um, but since it is one of those potentially confusing passages, uh, do, do any of you um, have any questions, or did that make sense? Okay. So after this, in verse seven, Peter then shifts to giving some additional exhortations. She so says. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, I understand that not everyone here necessarily has the same understanding of the last things. But it is my belief that there is nothing of the revealed will of God which would be left unfilled if Christ returned at this very moment. I know there are some people who say things like, well, before Christ returns, such and such has to happen and it hasn't happened yet. Therefore, he's not going to return yet. But I don't believe that's true. Um, The only thing that still has to happen before he returns is that he saves all of his elect. And we have no way of knowing when that has happened. And so we always must be prepared for his return. And we need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. If you remember back um, when we looked at verse 7 of chapter 3, it says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I talked about how there are things that can hinder our prayers. In that case, it was a husband neglecting the love of his wife. Likewise, lack of self-control and sober-mindedness can hinder prayers. And 
if you recall back when we looked at verse 13 of chapter 1, which also talks about sober-mindedness, we defined it back then as um, not being driven by desires and passions. So in other words, it means abstaining from the very sorts of things that were mentioned in verse 3 of our passage today. And so lacking self-control and sober-mindedness can hinder prayers in a number of ways. Just like I said back in the lesson on chapter 3, verse 7, people who are practicing ungodliness tend to be less frequent in prayer because sin tends to distract us from the things of God and also because sin tends to produce more sin. Uh, Also, as Pastor Thomas preached a while back, uh, God does not hear the prayers of the ungodly, and I think even believers when they've fallen into persistent sin, may have their prayers go unanswered as a result. Um, Another problem is that if we are participating in those things, it may cause us to feel too ashamed to even go to God in prayer. I know I've had that feeling sometimes. But the solution to that is repentance and begging for forgiveness. And if you've ever been through that kind of thing, then you've probably... uh, and you probably have been through that kind of thing. If you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, you know how it, how good it feels having that burden fall off your shoulders once you have finally gone to God in repentance and sought forgiveness from him. And so that should motivate us then to practice self-control and sober-mindedness and to take, that, take these things more seriously. Um, so next then he says... Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. This is not saying that we can atone for our sins by acts of love, but our love for one another should cause us to forgive and forget past offenses between one another. So not not necessarily that our love covers our sins before God, but our love can cover the sins of others uh, within our um, church community um, so that you know if somebody wrongs somebody else in the church because of our love for one another we do not hold those things against one another uh, it also our love for one another should cause us to be concerned about each other's sins being covered by God and before God and so our love does manifest in calling each other to repentance and faith and he says we are to uh, we are above all to keep loving one another earnestly. And so why does he use this phrase above all? And I think this is in line with uh, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 13 and James's in uh, James chapter 2. Would someone just uh, go and read those 1 Corinthians 13, just verses 1 to 3 and then verse 13. Speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Thank you. Maybe you're just the fastest page turner. <laughs> we need to go back to the Bible grill. That's what we need to do. Um, and, and could someone also read James 2, 14 to 17 as well? Someone who's not Hal. Thank you. <laughs> Yes, sir. Why does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Does also by faith, does also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's, that's all. Thank you. So why does Peter say above all keep loving one another earnestly? And it's because all other things, including faith itself, all, the, all other virtues are worthless and dead apart from love. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be times in the life of this church in which uh, Sometimes we don't necessarily get along with each other or somebody offends somebody, but um, we are commanded to respond in love and forgiveness at all times. Also, if you are the one who uh, finds out that you've caused offense to someone else, then out of the same love, you are to go to the person that you offended and seek their forgiveness from them and seek to restore that relationship. Next, he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality is something that we as a church have tried to take particularly seriously. Um, and we've generally expressed it in the form of uh, meals that are brought here to be shared with one another and with visitors. Um, that is a, a great practice, and I love that we do that. And we do go beyond that sometimes, like uh, providing meals for uh, a period of time for uh, specific people in the church who need it due to uh, just having a baby or through going some other going through some other kind of difficult situation. Um, I know when I moved uh, into my house, uh, and even before that, when I'd moved into my previous apartment, some people from this church showed up to help me with that. And these are all ways of showing hospitality to one another. Uh, before the pandemic, especially, some of us uh, did occasionally join together in each other's houses for fellowship. And I think it would be good for us now to uh, try to become more frequent in doing that sort of thing again. Um, but hospitality for Christians in first century Asia Minor would have probably also meant inviting those in need to even live in your house for a time and and providing for their other needs as well. Um, and so there's a, a great deal of, of sacrifice that's being called for here in this passage. Um, and so we need to be willing to bear one another's burdens and to help one another and take care of each other's needs. Um, I did check a while back. 
um, Tiago's sermon series on hospitality from several years ago is online still, and uh, I would encourage y'all to go back and, and listen to that again at some point. He says, um, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Um, I'm thankful that this church encourages men who are gifted in the ability to understand and teach the word of God to do so. Um, Because when the scriptures are proclaimed, it is God who is speaking. We need to understand that. The preaching office is a prophetical office and... uh, so when Pastor Thomas or Hal or Prashant or anyone else is standing before us and preaching to us, we should understand that he is serving as the mouthpiece of God and that what we are hearing is the word of God, even though that does not mean that it's an infallible interpretation. Um, and so we do need to have this mindset when listening to a sermon that um, when we are hearing the word preached, We are receiving the word of God. In fact, as I was driving over here this morning, uh, I was listening to a a podcast from a couple of days ago on the prophetical office of Christ. And it's talking about this. The the prophetical office of Christ is exercised through the church anytime the word of God is proclaimed. Uh, And that's formally in the preaching ministry of the pastors. But it also does include teaching like this or even just personally when we exhort one another with scriptures um and so you know that is a gift that we need to be exercising as a church um but besides that gift there are also gifts of service which each of us has in various kinds of measures some of us are gifted in preparing meals. Um, some are really gifted in hosting people in their homes. And others are gifted in, in doing manual labor, helping one another out with, uh, with various things. And these gifts ought to be exercised in service to one another and to the church. Uh, I'm also a fan of our occasional church work days because that's a way that we can exercise our gifts together in service to the church. And so it's good that we seem to be serious about doing these kinds of things for one another. And finally, he says, we're to do these things in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so this always needs to be our motivation and our drive for everything. The glory of God, we love to affirm, is our chief end. But let's be sure that we affirm that honestly, that we, that we mean it. And especially now as we join together to worship him, but also in everything else that we do in our lives. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We, you know, that dominion, meaning his governance of all things, we should let him be the one governing our lives and we should seek to follow him in everything that he has commanded us and we should... Uh, seek to see his dominion uh, realized in all things in our lives. Um, Let's see. Um, All right, well, so we have a little time, I think about a little under 10 minutes before our uh, prayer time. So uh, does anyone have any questions, comments, or thoughts about anything from this passage today? 
Are you asking me or do you want the Yeah, I want everyone. You know, this okay. is for everyone. Check in with people who call me. Oh, see, Tony, thank you. That's, that's a great way to go. Yeah. You can call I, me out. Oh, no. But, you know, sometimes it's an act of self-love that I, I live my time with you, Tony. Mm-hmm. Uh, no. <laughs> 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 but what are some other ways? That, that's an excellent yeah. Like okay. when, when we get a, a prayer request in, in group me, for example. Okay, for excellent. Sure. Always good. Oh, okay, go ahead. Kind of like a spin off of what We should we should try to do that. I, I mean, you know, I, I I do have friends who are not part of this church that I get together with every couple of weeks. It, it would be good if people within the church we should be doing that those kinds of things, even if it's just a little dinner and little stuff. things like that. Yes. And Miss Bunny, if I can just show, you know, Miss Bunny, she sent me a, a little thing that we talked about and we kind of geeked over the Bible with. That's a <laughs> wonderful time that we get to have with one another, and, and that we can also do that with one another here, not just with you know. Maybe because I know my position here that I'm, you know, on staff and I appreciate y'all. 
but I want that even when we are just chilling and hanging mm -hmm. out. I want this, you know, I get done in my internship in December. And so when I, I when I get done with that, I want to hang out with y'all still. I want y'all to still come to me and talk to me. It's, I like that kind of stuff, right? And so what, what are some ways in which uh, y'all can love one another? What about the new folks in here? I'm thinking about, uh, Lynn, what is your last name? Jones. Jones, the Jones family. <laughs> You know, how, what are some ways that we can show them in particular love hospitality? One, learning their last name. <laughs> Knew that was coming. Uh, but just, uh, there's some ways that we can love them. How can you, uh, uh, okay, I'm asking this for she's, you. She's very crafty. Mm -hmm. So like figuring out how she can teach us crafts. <laughs> Just to to paraphrase what I, I think you're getting at, that our God, we He's one God, perfectly united in His being, yes. but three persons, and those three persons perfectly love one another. Yeah. yeah. Seventeen and let's verse twenty, John seventeen verse twenty, and He's praying that God's people would be sanctified, made holy, and united together, and He's asking this not just for His immediate disciples but for all of us. I do not ask for these disciples only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, the church, that they may all be one. Catch this. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's a reflection. Our unity as the body reflects the unique relationship that the Father has with the Son, and ultimately with the Holy Spirit, yes. We can get to other passages to explore that. But it ultimately, ultimately reflects Christ in his infinite glory uh, by coming to us and being sent to us uh, for salvation. And so when we are reflective of our unity and love together, when both in our informal ways, but also in the uh, formal ways, all kinds of ways, when we have true love, even in those small acts and those small gestures, that speaks of eternal, that has eternal weight to it. So don't blow those off as if they're like, ah, I guess I can do this, you know, I just gotta be nice, that kind of thing. No. Do it for the glory of God, because we are reflecting something so grand in such a simple gesture. Does that make sense, everyone? Yeah. Any amen to that? I feel like that deserves an amen. Amen. It does. Amen. All right. All right. Go uh, yeah, will you close this real quick? I think we're. Yes, uh, yes. Uh, let's pray. Um, Father, we do ask uh, that you bind us together in perfect unity and love for one another, that we might reflect you truly all to your glory and honor. Not giving ourselves, uh, and by bringing in division, by giving ourselves to sin, but by wholly giving ourselves to you and your will, and being bound together in that one will together that we reflect the triune God in his perfect harmony and love. Oh, Father, we ask that we would be a God-glorifying church as evidenced by our love. And in this act, we do pray uh, for our brother, Richard. We do ask that you continue uh, to be with him, to comfort him, and help us as his body to love him during this difficult time, as well as many others who are in need of our love and attention. May you, oh, Father, be glorified by these simple acts, these simple gestures. Not because our love is the end-all, be-all, but ultimately that reflects your love that you have given to us in your Son. Father, may you be honored and glorified this day. We ask this all in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. Amen.